All right. Yeah, I think we're good now. All right. Um, before we uh, get rolling this morning, I want to remind you of a couple things. Today at 5.30, be a hot dog fellowship for the church. So if you like hot dogs and you like hanging out with a, your church family here, be here at 5.30. Bring yourself a folding chair. It's going to be out here beside the fellowship hall. And if it rains, we'll be in the fellowship hall. So come rain or shine, we'll have hot dogs and a devotion. Does that sound good? It's about spending time together. Second thing I want to remind you of is this. Uh, I don't know if many of you all pay attention or that are signed up. You should be signed up for the weekly emails that go out every Thursday. Used to have one on there that was a weekly podcast called Appalachian Baptist Network. Thank you. That one's kind of over. It was more aimed at church leaders. Um, I've had one on my heart for some time. And uh, this is kind of conversational, but it's called Faithfully Entrusted. Me and a friend of mine just started this. And you'll be seeing it in your email this week. I'll be sharing it on my Facebook page. I would appreciate if you would give it a listen. This is more for accessible for all people, not just, it's not just aimed at lay leaders. So try to have some good conversations that will help us to live faithfully and trusted, like Second Timothy says, therefore entrust the, faithful, the promises of God to faithful men who will teach them. And so we've all been faithfully entrusted with the word and the promise of God, you know, and so that podcast is designed to help us do that, to both live it and to... Uh, and to pass it on to others. Okay, so hope you'll give that a follow, give that a like, give that a share. That'd be great. All right, back to the text. We're in Luke today, Luke chapter 18. We're actually going to be going a little further than your bulletin says. I know I said I was going to stop at the end of 18, but the text is just so good. I got to keep going. We're going to finish up in chapter 10 there. Uh, And I want to say this before I read it. I personally think that these two narratives are intrinsically linked. Uh, let, me, let me share with you a passage uh, this morning to help you kind of see this. And um, this has been from a while back when I was doing my uh, morning reading. I came across Ecclesiastes and, and I was just gripped by the truth that is in this passage and also by the truth that we're going to see as Ecclesiastes chapter 4 verse 1 is lived out in this narrative today. Here's the word of God says in Ecclesiastes. It says, Again I saw all the oppression that had been done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the, on the side of their oppressors there was power. And this is fascinating to me. Listen to what it says about the oppressors. And there was no one to comfort them. So the Bible tells us here in Ecclesiastes that those who are oppressed need to comfort her, and those who are doing the oppressing need comfort as well. What an odd verse to start a sermon with, but I think you'll see this all beautifully unfold today. Jesus here has told his disciples he is going to Jerusalem. He's going up to Jerusalem. He's going to make this stop in Jericho in the text today. Um, Coach Bennett's been to the Middle East. You could talk to him more about this. But Jericho lies in a deep basin and carved into the earth. You have to go down to Jericho and then back up to get Jerusalem. So Jesus is going back up out of Jericho. Uh, In fact, I don't know if you realize this or not, Jericho is about 846 feet below sea level. (laughs) That's kind of a long way down. Uh, It's one of the the lowest-lying cities in the world. And uh, the only spot on the earth I think that's a little lower is, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, I believe it's the Dead Sea, is the lowest point on earth. 
And so Jericho is just slightly up from the Dead Sea. And so Jesus is coming down there. Keep in mind, Jesus told a parable of the Samaritan. If you'll remember, uh, there was a, a thieves that were attacking people as they were traveling the road to Jericho. Uh, they were lying in wait. And the reason is because Herod had established for himself a nice little uh, trade there in Jericho. He was rather fond of the place. And, um, and he had, uh, you know, it's kind of a bustling little city of trade there in, in, the, in that rift there, down in there. And it's, it was so, um, it got to be such a pretty good shaped place that uh, years ago, uh, right before Jesus is venturing over there, uh, at one point, the uh, uh, Cleopatra talked Mark Anthony into taking it from Herod and giving it to her, and she took it, and he did that, and she had it for a time, that city to control it, but her untimely demise led to it falling back into Herod's hands. In fact, Herod had built a summer home in Jericho. He liked it so much, or a winter home in Jericho, and he would stay there over the winter. There are actually still, from what I understand, there are still ruins of his winter home there, and if you want to ever go there and want to see it. So Jericho is a bustling city. It's a city of trade, a lot of travelers coming in and out. The journey's a little treacherous there to get in and out, uh, but uh, we're going to see all of these, these two narratives centering on this city. And so let us begin reading here now the Word of God. Hear the Word of God, church. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. And they said to him, Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front of him rebuked him, telling him to be silent. And he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight for your faith has made you sozo. The Greek word made it saved you. It has saved you, made you well. Verse 43. And immediately he recovered his sight. And look what it says here. And followed him glorifying God. And all the people when they saw it, gave praise to God. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And Jesus was seeking to see who, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead. <clears throat> And climbed a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And Jesus, and when Jesus came to that place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He was gone in to be with the guests of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. 
For the Son of Man came to, read it with me, church, seek and to save the lost. Amen. May God have blessing of the reading of His holy and errant and fallible word. I pray He writes this truth on all of our hearts because the grass withers, the flowers fade. Say it with me, church. But the word of our God endures forever. All right, back to Jericho's road here. Let's see what we learn here. In this first narrative, we learn about a man who is by the roadside begging. Now, let me be clear on the situation with a beggar in first century Israel. They served a function or a purpose in the society. Beggars in first century Israel were not like the beggars who stand by Lowe's in Carter County. You know what I'm talking about. Everybody sees them there. They're always there. Holding up a sign saying, no work, uh, need to feed family of four. Personally, one of my favorite times was when I was driving past Lowe's and there was somebody holding a sign that says, have family of four, no work. And they were standing in front of a sign that one of my dad's foreman had put there that said, uh, help needed, and the phone number was on it. So I took a picture of the person in front of that sign and uh, just, just for a chuckle, sent it to my dad. But anyhow, so uh, that wouldn't have cut it. Like you couldn't have just held up a sign that said, uh, can't work or, you know, need work and need to feed my family. You wouldn't have gotten anything. You needed to be able to have, you needed to have some kind of visible ailment that the community could see. Now you got to remember, there's no social security or things like that at that time. So this man's blind. People can tell he's blind. He has to be led around. You know, usually blind people, their eyes look a little different. They can tell and see that he is lame and can't work like the rest of them. So <clears throat> the way that this would work is if you had a disability like this, you would stand by an area. You needed to be in a higher traffic area. So you need to be on a road to a major city of trade. You need to be standing outside the temple where people are coming in and out with their sacrifices. And you would say, give to God, give to God, right? Here's your opportunity because they knew every rabbi taught of the day that every Israelite, every Jew was to do one good deed a day. And the beggars function in that culture and society was that they gave them that opportunity. Listen, they could have been the most rotten, terrible person. They could have been somebody who kicked cats and uh, stuck their tongue out at babies, right? That's just the worst of the worst, isn't it? And then they could come up to the beggar and give a little coin for the beggar or a little penance or whatever. And the, and the beggar would say, oh, thank you for giving to the Lord. I know that I I'm the conduit by which you've done, but you've given to the Lord. You have done your good deed. Praise your, and they would give them some kind of a blessing or some kind of a praise. And so, you know, they could go back the next day and kick a cat, give another coin to a beggar, and then feel better about themselves. You see how that works? So they, they served a function and a purpose in the culture. They were a way for them to uh, get a little bit of righteousness and get a little extra credit there by the teaching of the rabbis. So this is the function of the beggar. Uh, we'll see what we learn about him. First of all, he is blind. In first century, they saw blindness as uncurable. Uh, we have a lot of technology now. You can be legally blind and receive different treatments, and we can help you now. Not so in the first century. Uh, cataracts are, have a cure now. You know, you can get some of that removed. Uh, I pray to God that I don't ever have to go through any of that. I've talked to some of our uh, more experienced members of the church, and they talk about their eyes being injected with a needle and being awake for that. And I'm like, I... You're going to have to knock me out for something like that, for that kind of stuff, because I don't think I can handle anything touching my eye ever. That just seems like something out of a horror movie. But the first century world, no cure. So if you're blind, you're just a perpetual beggar. Like, this is your lot. You're going to beg by the road. You're going to beg by the temple. You're going to beg by these high traffic areas. He's poor. 
Obviously, he's destitute. He's completely dependent on what others give him to sustain himself. And the reality of the situation then is because of his blindness, because of his destitution there. Uh, he is desperate, and he's honestly, he's used by the community, right? So anybody could have taken him in and made him as part of their household so he wouldn't have to beg like that. Nobody's doing that. They're just kind of letting him function there so that people that have sin and issues can go to them, put a little coin in their hand, and get a better feeling about themselves when they leave. So he's in some ways oppressed. He could be helped better than what he is, but the society and the crowd that surrounds him is glad to leave him where he's at. Um, Now, what happens here? Uh, Let's notice here. Customarily, Whenever somebody important's coming to your town, the elders would often gather at the gate. There's a lot of writing in the Bible about that. If the person was important, the elders of the town would go out to meet them. And the more important you were, the further out they would go to meet you. And not only would the further out they would go, but the more people they tried to take with them to meet you. Okay? So you would be greeted by this like entourage on the road, which, by the way, helps with thieves backing off too. Right? So there's, there's kind of a dual purpose there. And so the elders, all of them know, they find out the word has come. Jesus of Nazareth will be coming through Jericho here on his way to Jerusalem, about 14 miles between the two, from what I understand and gather. And so they're going out to meet him. And this blind, destitute beggar who is oppressed by the culture he lives in hears the commotion. And they hear the people heading towards Christ to meet him. And ask them, what's going on, Right? He hears the crowd going by and inquire, why are y'all going out? Why is everybody coming by me? And then they tell him in verse 37, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. This is the moment he's been waiting for. Think about this. This is a man who has lived on the side of the road for most of his life, begging people as they go in and out of Jericho. These people that are performing trade routes, No doubt, just like the people on the road to Emmaus who were talking about Christ being crucified, you don't think people came in and said, have you heard about the prophet born of a virgin? Have you heard about the prophet who turns water to wine? Have you heard about the prophet who made the leopard clean? Have you heard of this prophet who told the centurion that his household, uh, that his, his, his child would be saved from death? And they were. He cured death. Have you heard about the man who spit, made mud, rubbed it on a blind man's eyes, and he was, went and washed it, and he could see. And he would hear these narratives and these stories as people would give him coins and as they would pass by. And I believe what the man had done is resolved himself that if Jesus ever comes within spitting distance of me, I'm going to make so much noise he can't just walk by me. I will make sure that I get his attention. And this is what we have happening, right? Look at verse 38. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. This is an interesting uh, title that the beggar gives Jesus. This is one of the only places in the Gospel of Luke where he is called son of David, which means that he believes that this is the fulfillment of the prophecies of the throne of David that will reign forever. This man sees something in Jesus before he has the ability to see physically, right? I've often heard it said that those who lose a sense are heightened in other areas. And by God's grace, this man's sense of who Christ is is heightened and he understands. Look at verse 39. And those who were in front of him, what did they do? What does it say, church? Shh, 
quiet, right? Shh. Tell him to be silent. This is a, you got to put yourself in their mindset. This is a man that performs miracles. We would like to have an audience with him. I would like it personally if he would stay at my house. In fact, we brought new linens this week, changed everything out, just in case they end up at our house. And we've got this beggar here. He's been here for decades, and, you know, he smells funny. And, I mean, he, he does a function for us, but we don't want him ruining this opportunity for us, right? Shh, be quiet. Be quiet. And what's to say the beggar does? He cries out again louder, right? Son of David, have mercy on me. He's not going to be shut up, right? If he's close enough to the son of David, he's close enough to the, to the Christ here that's preached about, that has been talked about on this road, he wants an audience with him. He wants, to, he wants just a little bit, just the hem of that garment, just something there as he passes by. Verse 40, Jesus stopped. So he's walking, right? That's the idea. He hears him, stops, right? And he commanded him to be brought to him. Can you imagine the crowd that just told him to be quiet? Well, he wants to see you. I don't understand it. I don't get it. But here, take me by the hand. He, the master wants to come with me. I don't know. Let's see. Come on. Right? Slightly aggravated, slightly agitated. They take him to Jesus, I imagine. And be brought to him. And when he came near him, he asked. Look at this question. Jesus always asks the perfect diagnostic question, doesn't he? Look what he says. What? Do you want me to do for you? Hmm. It is not as if Jesus cannot tell the man is blind. He is God in human form. He is well aware that this man is blind. But he is deciphering his intention and where his heart truly is. See, Jesus does this with his questions. He cuts through all of the silliness and all the nonsense talk. And he gets right at it. And right here, he's getting right at it. You do realize... That if I restore your sight, you can't stand by the road to Jericho and beg anymore. You will be responsible for making a living on your own. If I heal you right here, you can't just sit back. You're gonna, it's going to create your whole identity and who you were is going to shift and change. And you will be responsible for what happens. Another thing that's interesting to me is Jesus didn't say something like this. You know, I have a cousin. It's on, well, it's a distant cousin. It's Mary's, you know, husband's uh, cousin, and he's a blind man just south of Nazareth, and he got him a job at the local bazaar, and he, uh, he shakes people's hands as they come in, and he's got that job, and I'm going to come back through here in a few weeks, and if you're doing well, then maybe I'll give you a healing. He doesn't say that, does he? He just asks him, what do you want me to do, right? He's discerning the heart, and he's letting others see it, and then he said, Lord, let me recover my sight. Verse 42, Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. Literally in Greek, has saved you, right? And then how do we know that salvation has come here? That sozo verb that's used there. Look at verse 43 to make it clear in case you had any question. Immediately he recovered his sight, which is a sign of the future kingdom coming in. As, as what sin is maimed and broken and taken is now recovered by Christ. And followed him. And look what it says here after the comma. What's the beggar doing? He's now glorifying God. That's what saved people do. They bring glory to God's name. And all the people saw it. And what's the crowd's reaction? What's it say, church? They what? Gave praise to God. Can you believe that? That beggar that we've been giving coins to all these years, he finally got healed. That's something, isn't it? 
Aren't you glad to hear? I'm just so overwhelmed by it. Aren't you touched by that? I'm touched. You're touched, right? They're just all rejoicing. They're happy about that, right? Yeah, for now. Now let's see what happens when we go into Jericho. Right? And he entered Jericho. is passing through. Now before I go through this again, I want to show you something beautiful here that Luke is doing. All right? I saw this in the text this week. I was like, man, I'm sharing that in my sermon Sunday. Look at this. There are like nine steps in this passage that we're about to look at in these ten verses. First of all, Jesus comes. Second of all, Zacchaeus is introduced as a rich man. Third of all, we see the crowd again. Fourth of all, Zacchaeus goes up a tree. Fifth of all, Jesus speaks in an act of costly love. Speaks to Zacchaeus in an act of costly love. Sixth, Zacchaeus comes down from the tree. They kind of mirror each other. Isn't that interesting? Uh, the crowd then is angry, <laughs> and then Zacchaeus was rich, but now changed, and Jesus' final words of love at the close of this. So let's unpack this quickly here. Uh, he was entering Jericho, passing through there, verse 2 tells us, behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was, and this is a unique title that you only find here in the entirety of the New Testament. No one else has this title of chief tax collector except Zacchaeus. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time explaining this to you. If, how many of you were here when I talked about the Pharisee and the, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector in the temple? Raise your hand if you remember that sermon, right? You remember that? Many of you remember that? Here's the long and short of it. Nobody likes to pay taxes, right? Nobody enjoys paying the IRS. But at least we think we get at least some benefit back. They pay, they're supposed to pave our roads. We get emergency services. We get a lot of different things from our taxes. And they go back, hopefully, for the most part, here in the States. Not so in the first century. Tax collectors were fellow countrymen who were contracted out by Rome to collect taxes for Rome and get whatever else they can get on top of it. They are viewed in the community as extortioners. They are extorting money from their fellow countrymen and paying a foreigner, a foreign government. And, you know, rabbis were even caught instructing them, it's okay to lie to tax collectors because they're just uh, a bunch of extortioners anyway, so don't feel bad about doing that. It would not be unreasonable to say that tax collectors were some of the most hated people in their culture. Not just because they're taking taxes, but because they're taking taxes from fellow countrymen and women, and they're turning around and giving them to a foreign nation. So, you know, it's not a great line of work. But it is lucrative. Right? It tells us that he made a lot of money. So if he's a chief tax collector, that means he's bid a contract. He's gotten this section of Jericho. Probably got other tax collector cronies collecting for him. And they get a cut. Then he gets a cut. And then Rome gets the final, you know, gets a cut off of that too. And he has made a lot of money doing a lot of people dirty. All right? Verse 3. We, we will see, <clears throat> he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not see because he was small, and the Bible tells us shortened stature. We only see this word stature a few times in the Bible, one of the which we see uh, Jesus uh, talks about he grew in stature in the early part of his ministry. The other one, who can add a moment, uh, we say a, an inch of, uh, to their life uh, by worrying. It's really stature, which is about 18 inches, it's about a foot and a half. So Zacchaeus is about a foot and a half shorter than the whole crowd. Now, I would also like to point out a very practical reason that Zacchaeus climbed this tree. 
One reason that he would climb the tree was to see over top of the crowd. But there's a second reason. If you're the most hated person in town and you know everybody wishes you dead, do you think you want to be in a crowd of fellow townspeople? All it would take is a quick muffle and then a quick stab and no more taxes are collected from you, friend, right? You don't get any more taxes. So I would argue that Zacchaeus climbs the tree, one reason, because he's short, but another secondary and equally important reason to preserve his own life from being, uh, you know, cut in the crowd, so to speak. So he's up in the tree here, all right? Uh, verse 4. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into the sycamore tree to see what was there for him, not to mention there'll be a nice little, these, these trees have large um, leaves on him to be a nice little bit of shade there for him as they were passing on his way. Look at verse 5. And when Jesus came to that place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house tonight. What? You can, can you imagine the thoughts of the people in the crowd? Of all the people of Jericho, we have some of the best Pharisees in the nation. They give 20% to the temple. We have multiple houses prepared to receive you and your disciples. We have the cream of the crop of Jericho as far as God-fearers are here. You're going to speak to none of them, and you're going to talk to the most hated man in town, the man who oppresses us, the man who extorts our money, and the man who takes from us and never gives anything back. You're going to talk to this scoundrel, to this clown, and forget the rest of us? You can feel that bubbling up in the crowd, can't you? Why is Luke doing this? Why is Luke, talk, why is Luke drawing our attention to this? Remember what Jesus said about the Pharisee and the tax collector that it was easier for a camel to pass through what? The eye of a needle. And here in this text, friends, it's almost like Luke is saying, and so you're about to see the birth of a tax collector. You're about to see... A camel passed through a needle right here in the text, right? So he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house. Jesus speaks to him knowing that he'll create tension with them. Their oppressor is the one that Jesus speaks to from verse 6. So he hurried and came down and rejoiced. Look at this. He received him joyfully. Of course he would. When do you think the last time anybody addressed Zacchaeus in any form of love was? Probably never. Not since he took this job, right? If his mother's gone, it'd be the only person, I'd say, in that whole town that would, that would ask anything of him that would be close to community or fellowship or love with another human being. Verse 7. And when they saw it, they all, what's it say? Remember, what happened when the blind man was saved and he was given salvation? The crowd did what? They rejoice, Right? What's the crowd's reaction when Jesus speaks to the oppressor in the community? What's their reaction? They grumble. It makes them good Baptists, doesn't it? All these good Baptists in Jericho grumbling and complaining. He has gone in to be with the guest of a man like this. I mean, of all the people we have here, right? I mean, he could have picked Frank. He could have picked Dave. He could have picked, we know a lot of good Pharisees in this town. We even got some good Sadducees. I mean, I'm not really on board with their theology, but they're good people. They're good people, right? And of all these ones that they're out, he picks this guy. He picks this joker who ripped my grandmother off. Do you know how much he extorted from my grandmother? She was on her deathbed and he extorted from her. Every penny that man has is, is penny in blood and corruption. You can hear it, can't you? In verse 8, look what he says. 
we advance to verse 8? We might be stuck. And Zacchaeus stood and said to him, to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. It's fascinating to me. I can't help but think about the rich young ruler who came to Jesus just not long ago, right? Remember, remember what he said to Jesus? We contrast it with the beggar and with Lazarus or with Zacchaeus here. What must I do to be saved? There's nothing that you can do to be saved. As one of the reformers said, the only thing you bring and contribute to your salvation is your sin. <laughs> what, is the, what does the blind man do? He, he calls out. He knows he can't do anything to fix his blindness. He asks Jesus to do it all. Zacchaeus here. We see something similar, right? He doesn't ask Jesus, what must I do to be saved? He knows he has no hope apart from Christ doing it all for him, does he? Behold, Lord, half my goods I give to the poor. Isn't this what he told the rich young ruler to do? Give your goods to the poor and follow me, right? And he says, in the other half, I've defrauded anyone of anything. I'll restore it fourfold. I won't just give it back. I'll give it back four times over. This is a man who has found Christ, who is repenting, and cares little for the things of this world. He only wants Christ because he knows that's where true treasure is. Verse 9. Jesus said to him, Today, just in case you're wondering if it was true repentance for him, that's what true repentance for him looked like. The the beggar couldn't repent like this because he didn't have money to repent like that, right? Uh, He he was destitute. This man's rich. Rich is, you remember what Jesus said, it's easier for the camel to pass through an eye of a needle. What's it look like here? A lot of that's going to be given away. It says, today salvation has come to this house since he also is the son of Abraham. How long do you think it's been since somebody said that to him, right? You know, I can't believe you collect for these Romans. You're not a son of Abraham. You're, a, you're nothing but a cunning, sly fox. That's all you are. You just come in here and you steal from us. You do nothing of the sort. And here Jesus affirms him. He affirms his repentance. He affirms his status in the family of God. And then look at verse 10, how beautiful to close with. For the Son of Man, Jesus referring to himself like that, it's one he gets from the Old Testament title he borrows there uh, from Daniel, came to seek and to save the lost. There are so many applications of this text today for you, but let me give you a few. First of all, it's this. What's your greatest treasure? Is your greatest treasure uh, what you have? Is it the things you have? Uh, Is it the things you cling to? Because Zacchaeus saw that no matter how you get stuff, Stuff is by far short compared to what's needed for Christ. But more importantly, this. Tell me. For the ones that we oppress, are we joyful when they come to Christ? Let's be honest. We are not just ones who are oppressed, but we are oppressors as well. Just like the crowd who oppressed this beggar, do we rejoice when they come to Christ? Or do we say, oh gosh, who am I going to pay my penance to now and get my blessings from now? Right? Who's going who's gonna to fill this function for me to use now? And then the other one, and the second one's even more difficult, I think. What about the people who have oppressed us? Do we pray that they would come to know Christ? Do we rejoice when people who have flat out stolen from us or wrecked our lives or destroyed something precious to us, do we rejoice when they come to Christ? Do we pray for them to know Jesus? Do we boldly share Christ with them so that they would know him? You see, 
Christ came to save the lost. That means us, we like that. That means the oppressed, we're, we're okay with that. But the oppressor as well. Jesus came to save them all, didn't he? You know, one comedian I was listening to not long ago pointed out something that's very true. You know, we need gestures and comics in our culture because they are the ones who can say things that are true and people can kind of laugh and usually things that are funny are true, right? He said, you know, years ago, the right, the political right, determined the moral standing of the culture. He said, now it's the left, right? And one of the things that I think is true about that, I have watched people since I've been a pastor who have sinned according to the morality of the left, and they have oppressed people in different ways. Paula Dean, you remember what happened to Paula Dean, right? She did a little oppressing of people. And what happened? There's no way back for somebody who is an oppressor, is there? On the left, there's no, there ain't no amount of butter or pies that Paula Dean could cook through to get her status back on the left. But praise God, the gospel says, you can be redeemed. If you are an oppressor, you can be redeemed. If you are oppressed, you can be redeemed because Jesus came, beloved, to seek and save the lost on both sides of that equation. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this text. Thank you for how true and how right it is. God, we stand before you today as oppressed and oppressors. Lord, help us to be a people who rejoice like Zacchaeus, who cheerfully and lovingly give of all that we are and all that we have so that many may come to you. Those who oppress us and those who we've oppressed, Lord, would you save them all here in Carter County and in the Tri-Cities and beyond. Lord, help us to see clearly, clearly your heart in this text, that you would go to one of the ones who was most abused in that culture, all the way to one who was most hated. God, give us your heart. We can't do that on our own. We need your help. We need your gospel. Lord, we need you, the Holy Spirit, to help us with this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you're here today and you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're in one of those groups that were talked about today, won't you come now? This is the best time. Is right now. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. Or maybe you want to follow Christ the next best step, which is baptism. Come talk to me in the back. I'd love to talk to you about that. Or if you want to be part of this church family, every Every believer needs a family. Nobody is called to do this thing on their own. Won't you come be part of this family here at Grace Baptist Church as we sing? Please stand.